0: As Doug said, we're, we're getting close to the end of the Fruit of the Spirit series. Uh, we got two more. Today, we're going to be talking about gentleness. And we'll have something to say about it, but it just as a reminder, here's our, our, our basic text for, for the, the series. is Galatians 5. Um, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Have you guys been practicing the song? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith. Clay, Clay has got it. Clay has it. The rest of you are behind. That's okay. Uh, if, in case, it's, it's helpful because then if you're ever wondering what the fruit of the Spirit are, you have it right there. Today we're talking about gentleness. And I think there, there may be, there's a few places where we just really see God's incredible, uh, gentleness. But one of the, one of the most powerful, uh, comes from John 8. And so let's look at our text for today. Uh, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives at dawn. He appeared again in the temple court. so remember he 's in the temple. it 's a crowded place. All the people are gathered around him. He sat down to teach them, as rabbis did. They would sit to teach. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. She was cheating on her husband. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, "Teacher, Rabbi, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. We actually caught her cheating." They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, uh, "Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of in, in the, the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Stoning is uh it's a pretty barbaric it's rough practice, but it's it's the, uh, the the act of like using big rocks to crush someone. So usually they'd put a person in a pit and then begin pelting them with rocks. Uh the mercy was to use a really large rock to knock them out. Um, but a lot of times, if people were being particularly barbaric, uh, they would use smaller rocks to uh, prolong suffering. What do you say, Jesus? It, Moses says that we're supposed to stone such women. That's there are places where that the, the death penalty is um, authorized. Uh, but we know from history that that almost never happened. It was very, very, it was, it was very, very rare for the death penalty to be used um, in a in a case like this. But nevertheless, the, they're they're trying to trap Jesus. So like, well, what do you say? Is Moses wrong? Well, it goes on. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning, they're badgering him. Is Moses wrong? What do you say? Should we kill this woman? When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this... Those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up, he's been writing on the ground, he straightens up and asks her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. I, th- this is clearly, I mean, there's a there's a tenderness here that is, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of pull it apart. We'll explore it a little bit as we go through. But I, I do want to set uh, uh, some ground rules. I, I do want to clear one thing out of the way. In our culture, um, and uh, it may be just a Western culture thing, I'm not sure, but there's a tendency for us to think about Jesus as like this really sweet, um, kind of effet, uh, kind of feminine, kind of weak guy who just is nice to everybody who loves people and that actually you can you can see how this text might be used to further that the idea that Jesus isn't really strong and the idea that Christians really what our job is to be like like kind of kind of kind to everybody well just to to disabuse you of that notion just 6 chapters earlier uh, this is what happened. Let's just read about Jesus. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple courts. Back to, he's in the temple courts again. This is six chapters ago. He's in Jerusalem. Uh, he found people selling cattle, sheep, doves. Others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, like a cat of nine tails. It was a pretty gnarly way to. And he drove all from the temple courts, sheep, cattle, scattered the coins of the money changers. You mess with my money, you mess with my heart. Right? And he overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Okay, Jesus can be gentle, but Jesus can also be tough. Jesus is a dude, he's a man. There's a part of him that is gentle, there's a part of him that's tender just as, as the Father, is part of him is tender, but there's also a part that responds with power and with action, especially in cases of egregious evil. This is very important for us to understand. It, it, specifically in this culture where we're told, where we're, we're suggested, when evil happens, oh, just show grace. I'm not saying we shouldn't show grace, but we should also stand by the truth and call out evil and seek to stop it. That, that That's the first thing you're going to Biblical gentleness is not niceness or weakness. Okay? Part of what's going on is that Jesus is demonstrating gentleness because he is trying to gather a woman into the kingdom. A woman who, is, as we're going to see, has been, been abused. When When Jesus sees people with power oppressing those who should be innocent, who are innocent, he gets mad. And so should we. Mary, let's skip the, skip the question. Let's just go right back to the text. So let's, let's pull it apart. Let's pull apart the gentleness of Jesus. First, look at the situation of the woman. I mean, this is, this is brutal, okay? So, so presumably what's going on is that this woman is caught cheating. That means someone kicked down a door. Okay? And then they kicked down the door and they grabbed her and they dragged her to the temple in front of all these people and they made her stand there before the group. And then the cheater, cheater. In the law, Moses, Moses commanded us to stones. She deserves to die. Isn't it odd that they don't talk to her? They don't address her? This woman is just a prop for them. She is just an excuse to trap someone they don't like. I have a picture here of some Nazi propaganda from the 30s. This is from a Der Stürmer, which was a um, a a weekly magazine in Nazi Germany, and was notorious for posting pictures of um, cartoons that would, would. make the Jews look bad. So you can see here, uh, the the Jews are, are presented not as human beings, but as a spider. Sometimes they were presented as rats. Um, uh, sometimes they were presented as humans, but they were like grotesque, like big, they had these monstrous noses and big bags under their eyes, almost like they were... Um, like dwarves or something like that. And then always there's these, these innocent victims surrounding them, right? Some, some children, some, some beautiful blonde-haired, blue-eyed children who are being you know, taken advantage of by these spiders, these rats, these gnomes. The first way to make it okay to shame, humiliate, and kill people is to dehumanize them. I bring this up, uh, because that's what's happened to this woman. This woman has been dehumanized. She's been, she's been set apart and made somebody who's, who's not worth the same mercy, the same compassion, the same respect that other people are. And that makes it okay. It makes it easier to throw the stone, right? Like it would be a lot easier when we're, we're heaving rocks down on, on, on a defenseless person if we didn't believe they were really like us, that we're better than them, that we're different. The next thing in your notes, you see the Pharisees dehumanize the woman to justify shame and cruelty. You know, I don't uh, like to get too political here, but um, I do think it's worth recognizing that we are in a moment in our, in our culture where uh, Jewish people are again being dehumanized. They're again being treated as not human, as less than, as different. And that's being used to justify horrible acts. We as Christians will not stand for that. That is not something we will accept here. Go back to the text. See how Jesus, what Jesus does. They were using this question as a trap. So what does Jesus do? He bends down and he starts writing on the ground with his finger. It's very odd. And then while he's doing it, they're badgering him. Right? So Jesus is doing this and he's like, you know, and, and, and they're like shouting at him. Hey, what are we going to do with this cheater? You, you know what Moses said. And then he, does, he ignores them. He just keeps writing, just keeps writing. And finally, he stands up and he's like, okay, any of you who's without sin, you be the first. You get the first, the first throw. This, this person that's not a person, this person that you're better than, this, this, this rat, this spider. You're, and then after he says that, he goes and he, and he keeps writing. This has confused people. Uh, many, for, for thousands of years, people are like, what is going on here? Uh, I, we can't know for sure, right? The scripture doesn't say, but we do have a clue. And the clue is this, the word that's, uh, that you see there started to write on the ground. That's, uh, the, the Greek word katagrapho. Um, and it's very interesting. This word is never used anywhere else in the new Testament. Not once it's never used. Then uh, below where it says he wrote on the ground, that's the word grapho. Grapho does get word, uh, used in the New Testament, but never about Jesus. In fact, it's that's usually the noun form which talks about the writings of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, okay? So if you're reading in Greek, you're seeing this, you're seeing a very bizarre word, katagrapho, and then you're seeing Jesus graphoing, which is what is usually ref, usually refers to the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Well, there's another place where katagrapho gets used, It gets used in Exodus. What does it get used about? Let me show you. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets, the Ten Commandments, the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed, katagrapho, on both sides, front and back. If you're a first century reader and you know the Jewish scriptures and you're hearing this, you might be hearing that what Jesus is, what he's doing is he's writing down either the Ten Commandments or some part of the law, maybe his interpretation of it. He's doing the very same thing that God did when God inscribed the Ten Commandments on the tablets. This is actually a moment where Jesus may be uh, claiming to be God. But what he's doing is he's saying, oh, well, you know, don't, you know, don't cheat, uh, don't lie, don't murder, don't hate, don't do all these things. And, and more and more, I mean, there's, there's so many different laws he could be quoting, but he, he keeps writing them. I'm like, what are you going to do? Moses said this, Moses said this. And, and Jesus keeps writing and writing and writing because everything he's writing, what is it doing? Oh. Well, she, she cheated, that's bad, I'm not going to condone that. What'd you do? I have a picture of my mom here. She's, uh, she's, you, oh yeah, you, you can see her. She's on like the bottom left corner in the white. You guys see her? <laughs> she's like, no. Oh, you're not in that picture? Look, my mom's famous. She's, she's an actress. She, she, uh, she was a, the, the Feeding of the Five Thousand, Sermon on the Mount, whatever, what, it, they're all the same. <laughs> uh, she was an extra a couple of years ago, um, in the Feeding of the Five Thousand, so I thought I would, you know, throw that up. But, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is, it's Matthew five to seven. It's a fascinating text. It's probably the most profound uh, ethical text in the history of humanity, uh, because of the the various things that it does. It, it's interesting. You should read it. You should go after church today. You should write down. Read Matthew five to seven. Okay. And your job is is your job is to get through Matthew five to seven, and feel good about yourself. Okay. That's your goal. All right. Uh, because one of the M- Martin Luther, God bless him, when he was reading Matthew five to seven. He kept, as, as he would go through, he, he would just start to worry about going to hell. He was like, I, I can't do this. Oh, don't just not adultery. Don't even lust. Oh, I bet we're going to have a really good percentage of guys and girls in here. Oh, yeah, I've never lusted before. Oh, yeah, you know, when someone hits you, turn the other cheek. Uh-huh. Yeah, we're good at that. You just go, Don't worry, don't worry about the future, don't worry about money. Come on, this guy look at the flowers in the field, they're the what are you worried about? <laughs> Martin Luther was reading Matthew five to seven, he was like, Oh my gosh. We're in trouble. The same thing is happening here. Jesus doesn't, and this isn't the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus is doing essentially the same thing with the Pharisees. Like, oh, you did this, did you do this, did you do this, did you do this. Next thing, you're no cheats. Jesus reminds us no one has done what God has required. Like, none of us. And the implicit question is well, where do you get off, man? Really? Really? That's what you, you know, you, you got, she, she did this, and, but what about you? And then the moment where we see biblical gentleness in action is right at the end. They all get up, they leave. And the first thing to notice is that Jesus addresses her, right? The first, this, this woman who has been treated as a prop and object, Jesus says, I see you. That might sound a little weird to us, woman. Where are they? It's it's, it's a cultural thing. Uh, that, that was not like a that was not a very weird way to, to address someone. It was it basically it was very normal to be like, hey, miss, you know, something like that. Or madam. I see you. But no one's no one's condemned you. No, neither do I. Go now and leave your life of sin. I see you. I know you've done wrong. Stop. But I'm not going to condemn you. I have a clip here uh, from the 1986 World Series. Uh, it's uh, Mets and the Boston Red Sox. The Red Sox, game six, the Red Sox are up three to two. Um, It's the 10th inning. If you don't know baseball, this just really means it's really intense, very serious. Um, And and miraculously, it looks like uh, the Mets, who if they lose this game, they lose the World Series. They they have a chance to to catch up. They tie the game. It's the 10th inning. They're up at bat. Mookie Wilson. And this happens. 10th inning. Can you believe this ball game at Shay? Oh, brother. Three and two to Mookie Wilson. Little roller up along first. Behind the bag. It gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight, and the Mets win it. If one picture is worth a thousand words, you have seen about a million words. But more than that... You have seen an absolutely bizarre finish to game six of the 1986 World Series. The Mets are not only alive, they are well. You can cut it there, man. (laughs) That's uh, That first baseman, his name is Bill Buckner. Uh, Bill Buckner had an amazing career in Major League Baseball. But he was remembered for one thing. That. The Mets would go on to win game seven. They won the World Series. All because Bill Buckner let the ball go between his legs. I cringe every time I see that. Not just because it's, I feel so bad for him. They actually did an interview with Bill Buckner years later where he talks about how it shaped him to be known, the, known for one thing, the, the guy who lost the World Series for the Red Sox. That, and how it shaped him, how it changed him, like the shame, the, the, and I, so it's fascinating that he, you know, survived that. But, but the reason it, it, it hits me is, I remember, uh, I was probably, seven, eight, something like that, and I was playing Little League, uh, the Dodgers, and my dad was my coach, and I was playing third base, and we were, the game was happening, and a grounder came to me, and I was scared of the ball, like, I, and I still am, like, I, I don't like, I don't want to get hit. There were a couple times where the ball hit me in the face, and I was like, I don't like that, um, And so I, you know, I did the thing where I was, I went to get down, but then I knew I had to throw the guy. And so I took my eyes off the ball and it just dribbled between my legs. And my dad yells, Thomas Andrew Bennett, keep your eye on the ball. How could you do that? Something along those lines. (laughs) So I did, I was mature. So I threw my mitt on the ground. I just started to cry. It was like, and my dad slept on the couch that night. I didn't, I didn't know why, <laughs> uh, but he did. Um, I see that, that clip of Bill Buckner, and, and I even read this text, and this, this poor woman. What's crazy is, you know, it, when you get right down to it, human beings, we're, we're, we're weak on the inside, and we've all, we, every single one of you here has some moment of the wall, ball being going between your legs. You have something like that. You have one of those moments, maybe 10, maybe 100, maybe 1,000. Maybe those moments are all you remember from your childhood. Maybe they've stunted you and damaged you to the point where you have a hard time trusting anyone. Maybe you've built up walls because you're like, the last thing I want to do is hear Thomas Andrew Bennett. Keep your eye on the ball again. And maybe you expect what you, what you think is going to happen to you, wherever you are, is that people are going to go after you. They're going to condemn you for all the little things and some of the big things that you do. Jesus sees you. He knows that that's what's happened to you. And he shows a special kind of gentleness. It's biblical gentleness. It's the next thing in your note sheet. It's acknowledging that people are fragile and we should be handled with care. Jesus' job is not to (laughs) fix the woman's problems all day. His first job is to handle her with care because no one else is, right? For others, she's just a prop. She's a trap. She's an excuse to indulge in, in rage and violence. She's made mistakes, but she still needs to be handled with care. I've got a couple of questions for you. The first is who have you treated like a prop? Who have you used and been harsh with. Who have you maybe dehumanized? Maybe who have you... And is it time to try a different path? In some cases, it's not. In some cases, we do have to be harsh. You know, we, we can't we can't just be fuzzy, you know, all the time. But there, there might be a place or a person or people or a group, a colleague, a family member that, that maybe... A softer touch is what's needed right now. And the second question is, who has been hurting you? Who who is the one who just can't, who just keeps you remembering the ball going between your legs, and won't let it go? It might be time for you to stand up and say, "Hey, I'm not perfect. I'm sorry, but you need to let it go." Last thing I, I want to point out is this: this is where Jesus moves to the next level of gentleness. All right, that that right there, this is an, that, the way he treats the woman is, is biblical gentleness. It's how God treats people from the beginning to the end of Scripture. But I want you to look at at this last bit: um, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. And then what happens? What happens right after that? Like, next slide, man. Those who heard began to go away. One, the older ones first. Isn't that interesting? The older ones first. The reason for that is because the older you get, the more you know who you are. The older you get, the more you realize what you've done in your life. The more you remember and, and, and can't forget and, and, and you just can't stop thinking about the regrets that you have, the sin that has, that has followed you. But isn't it interesting how Jesus treats these Pharisees? These are guys bang for a woman's blood. Okay? They're like, let's, let's kill her with rocks. Okay? That's, that's, for, and what does Jesus do? Does Jesus, does He just lay into Him? Does Jesus confront them, stand in front, and start just battling? Like, oh, how dare you? And this is Jesus, right? He knows what they've done. Look at you, Pharisee. I know that you did this. And you're filled with pride. And you are constantly berating people who are less than you. And you, Like, he doesn't do any of that. Jesus is actually gentle with people who want to kill the woman. Instead of going after them the way that I would have, the way that we would have, Jesus extends gentleness even to his enemies. Now, I, you know, again, this is one of those moments where it's like, I just this—he truly is God incarnate, right? And and yes, we're called to follow him. Yes, we're called to um, to imitate him. And it's going to be difficult to know when and how to implement this because sometimes, sometimes we can't, right? Sometimes the people are after us and we have to defend ourselves. But there is there is a higher calling. There's a higher calling where Jesus is like, it's, this is Jesus', uh, Jesus gentleness. And the next, last thing you're note sheet Jesus' gentleness is kindness even towards enemies, even towards people. Remember, they're not just after that woman's blood. They are after Jesus' blood, and eventually they will get it. And Jesus knows that. And yet, instead of shaming them and being cruel to them and tearing them down, he simply allows their own consciences to condemn them. And so I just want to leave you with one last question. And, and this, is the, this is the big one. Who doesn't delir- deserve your gentleness? And is God asking you to show it in any way? I know there's someone in every, every person here has someone in your life who definitely does not deserve you to treat them fr- fragilely as they are. What they really deserve is for you to smash them. They've earned it over and over and over again. But the question is, is Jesus calling you to be gentle even with them? And if so, how do you do it? Let's pray. Oh, wait, before we pray, one last thing. Let's be a place where we see each other. Okay. Uh, it's so easy for us to just slip through the cracks. You know, it's so easy for us to instrumentalize each other, just treat each other as objects. Instead, let's do what Jesus did and see each other and acknowledge each other in our fragility and be with each other in that. Let's be that kind of people. Let's be that. That's the way our Savior is leading us. He is leading us into that type of gentleness. We're going to close with that song, uh, The um, Way My Savior Leads Me. And the way he does it is not by smashing us and not by condemning us. The way he does it is by loving us, showing grace to us, not condemning us, and encouraging us to follow him. All the way my Savior leads me. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for the gentleness of Jesus. We thank you for your gentleness, Father. The way that so often you remember that we're just we're broken, we're we're not strong, even when we develop thick skins, sometimes it's just a show and it just cuts us off. But instead of treating us the way that the world treats us, God, you treat us the way we need to be treated. You lead us gently. You're with us, encouraging us. You don't hold our sins against us because they've been paid for. And you're bringing us to glory. All the way you lead us, our Savior, and we want to follow you. Jesus, in your name we pray, amen.